have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 as we continue through the book of Romans. Uh, we have come to Romans 1.18. If you're looking in your pew Bible, I believe it's on page 939. Uh, so let's turn there and let's read together Romans 1.18. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God, this is in contrast to the righteousness of God that was spoken of in verse 17 just before this. The theme verse of the entire book of Romans, the theme verse of the whole of Romans in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We have there the beautiful truth that we spoke of last week, that God justifies sinners by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not in any way according to our works, but instead those who by faith are righteous are the ones who will live. The righteousness of God is revealed in the good news, in the gospel, that we can live by faith. And today, he turns to the very beginning portion as he's going to explain that for a number of chapters following this one, the next thing that he turns to in explaining the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel and explaining God's saving grace, the first place he goes to is the wrath of God. In the previous verse, he said the righteousness of God is revealed, and now he says, for the wrath of God is revealed. The starting place that Paul goes to in explaining the gospel in the book of Romans is our desperate need for God's grace. We know that God is the one who must save us, or at least I hope we know that. We can't save ourselves. We need God to save us. But the question that is in front of us today is what is it that we are saved from? And I'll tell you the answer up front. We are saved from God. This is a beautiful thing of the gospel. We are saved by God from God. The very God who would cast us into hell if we were left in our sin is the one who has sent his own son to die for us while we were still sinners and demonstrated his love for us. When I was uh, doing uh, ministry at a church in Colorado several years ago, I was in charge of the, uh, the college and young adult ministry at our church, and there was a number of other uh, churches in town that had um, ministries that were sort of targeting the same age group. And a number of us from these churches would get together occasionally, uh, sometimes as much as once a month, just to, to talk about ministry, to talk about what was going on, to encourage each other, to pray for each other. But it was, a, it was an interesting mix of, uh, of people from an interesting mix of churches. And so we had uh, our church represented there. There was a conservative uh, Presbyterian church from the PCA there. There was a liberal Presbyterian church represented there. Uh, there was a, oh, all kinds. And the, the, the one that was most prominent was this church of about 10,000 people where the guy who was preaching to college students was preaching to about 1,000 college students every week. And whereas, as I was teaching, about a dozen. And, uh, and, and one week, uh, we got together, and the big controversy in the Christian world at that time that was all over the Internet was this book that had just come out called Love Wins by Rob Bell. 
I don't know if you have ever heard of that book, but if you ever read it, you will think to yourself, I'm very impressed with myself because I read a whole book in just two hours. Um, I think that might be the reason that some books get popular is because you can just sit down and read it and then brag that you read a book that day. But Rob Bell had been influential in, in evangelical circles for a long time, and this was sort of his coming out book as not being a Christian. There had been questions about his theology for a long time, but eventually this book came out and just basically said, hey, I don't believe that people go to hell, but maybe if they do, they can just get out, and maybe really the only thing that actually sends people to hell is if you're a religious Pharisee kind of person who thinks that the main thing is, is having faith in Jesus instead of going and, and digging wells in Africa. That's kind of the gist of the book. And we had this discussion among ourselves at, at that that meeting of those who ministered to college students, and I was just shocked. I was shocked how many of the guys in that room thought, well, this is probably not a problem because look at this name who endorsed it on the back, and I trust that guy. Well, surely he's not really saying that. Surely he's not really saying that. And, and I said, D don't, don't you think that it's important that we know what we're saved from? Don't we need to know the reality of the wrath of God? Don't we know, need to know the reality of, uh, of the, the, the judgment in hell that we deserve in order to, to embrace the rescue from that? And the room was not with me on that. And the guy who ministered to 1,000 college students a week went and wrote a blog post saying, we don't, it's, we don't need to emphasize what we're saved from. And I read that and I thought, okay, he's talking about me. We talked about it later, but guys, we got to know what we're saved from. We've got to know what we're saved from. The starting place for so many who want to soften the message of the Bible is something like, here is the victorious life that you can have. I know that things are hard for you, and here is a way that is better. That, by the way, is also how the cults do it because it sounds very appealing. Just come on in. Things are going to get better if you do it this way. Now, I want to submit to you that if you come to Christ, things will get better eternally. You will rejoice in the glory of Christ forever and ever. But the starting point of the gospel here is you need to know the desperate lostness of mankind you need to know what we are saved from, and what we're saved from is the wrath of God. As he's going to say this in Romans 5, 9. Listen to this. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that's by the blood of Jesus shed for us, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Wow. From the wrath of God. Here's what is going to be presented to us. I want to give you just a, first of all, if you're following along on the, the outline on the back of your bulletin, that might be helpful for you. I want to show you what's, what's coming up in this next section of Romans, because we've just come to a big section break in the book of Romans. And this section starts here at this verse, Romans 1, verse 18, and this section goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And what this section of Romans teaches us is mankind's 
universal need of the grace of God. You must know that you need grace to receive grace. The way that Jesus put it is that you need to know that you are sick before you can come to the physician to be healed. Jesus came to heal those who would come to him to be healed. Now, of course, that knowledge comes by the grace of God. It comes by an opening of the Holy Spirit of our minds to understand that. That's a whole other thing. But you just need to know this. If you don't get that you're sick, you won't go to the doctor. If you don't see your desperate need for the grace of God, you won't run to God for that grace. And so that's what Paul is doing in these chapters, in this section. He starts out speaking of the rebellion against God's general revelation. That's Romans 1.18 uh, through 32. What that means, general revelation, we'll talk about this more next week especially, it means that God has revealed something about himself to every human being of all time through creation and through the conscience that he's written on every human heart. And through those things, every human being is without excuse before God. And what have human beings done in response to that general revelation of creation and conscience? Have human beings decided to turn to God and to do their best and to worship him however they can? No. The natural human heart does not respond to God's general revelation of himself in such a way as to turn to him. It responds to God by rebelling against God and worshiping the creation rather than the creator and sinking deeper and deeper into sin and into the desires of the flesh and into self-justification and into suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, not doing what we can to be good people, doing what we can to try to prove that we're awesome as we ignore God. That is the natural state of human beings. That is the rebellion against God's general revelation that's all the way to the end of chapter 1. And then when you get to chapter 2, he starts speaking of the rebellion against God's special revelation. God's special revelation is what we call the Bible, primarily. It's the fact that God has not left all mankind just to grope about in the darkness of general revelation, but he has also specifically told us about himself. This came through the prophets of the Old Testament, it came through the sending of Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh for us. It continues in the witness of the Holy Spirit as we open up our Bibles and read the words of the Holy Spirit and our completed Bibles. But the question that's in front of Paul and in front of the Roman church as they seem to be trying to figure out the relationship between Jews and Gentiles within one believing church is, is there a difference in what needs to happen with Gentiles from what needs to happen with those who are from this Jewish background? You've got the Gentiles who were just out in tribes and barbarians coming into Rome, and then some Gentiles who were more cultured and come up in Greek culture and Greek philosophy. Is there one path to salvation for them? But then when you look at the, the Jewish people, well, maybe it's, there's something different because they already had the prophets. They already had the law and the Ten Commandments. Does that mean that they were already a step closer than everyone else. And what he's going to do in Romans chapter 2 all the way to uh, Romans 
is he's going to say, absolutely not. He'll say, absolutely not. Now, of course, there is benefit. He's going to explain this at the beginning of chapter 3. There is much advantage in every way for the Jew because to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And that is a beautiful thing. That opened up the opportunity to be saved. But the reality remains for every human being that you got to be saved. You have to be saved from your sins personally. Being part of a group of people who are religious and who possess the Bible and talk about the Bible and having knowledge of the Word of God in some way is not something that saves anyone. And in fact, the way that Paul's going to present it here is it actually makes those who reject a need for personal repentance and personal faith, it makes them even more guilty before God because they've had the law of God in front of them and rebelled against it even when it was spelled out so clearly. He says in in verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He's going to go down in in chapter 3, verse 9. Or excuse me, look at chapter 2, verse 12. That's where I want to look first. It says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That's what... He's said before, the man out on the island off the coast of Africa. Those who've sinned without the law will perish without the law. But then, all who have sinned under the law, by the way, that includes you guys, you're sitting right here under the law in the seats of this church, will be judged by the law. When I say you guys, I mean if you come out of here unbelieving today. All right? Having the law of God, even having some sense of respecting the law of God, does not save anybody. And so he goes on and he he just sums this up by saying that Jews and Gentiles are all under the power of sin in the natural state that we're born into. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And if you couldn't get any clearer than that, he keeps going from there. He keeps going. He's saying all are under the power of sin in that natural state. He sums it up in verse 19 of chapter 3 by saying, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. That's not the mouths of just those who are out there, just those people who vote the wrong way, just those people who've never heard about this stuff, just those people in those other religions. Not just that, but every mouth. Every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's without exception. For by works of the law, here's the big finale of this section. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, what we have when we look out on the most beautiful sunrise over the Atlantic Ocean, when we have our own conscience that tells us, I ought to do this good thing, 
and I do it. And we feel so good about those things. What we have there, driven home for us in these scriptures, is you're not going to be saved by that. You're not going to be saved by just looking out at creation and having some sense, wow, the God who made this is good. That's true. But you're not. You're not going to be saved by following the law that's on your heart, your conscience, because you know what? God knows. He says that he will judge the secrets of the heart, of every heart, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say to yourself, but I love the Bible. I'm a great student of the Bible. I can quote to you more verses than the pastor is quoting that are relevant to what he's talking about right now. I can, I can tell you which theologians have written about this and in which ways. I can tell you alternative theological terms for the ones that the pastor is using right now. That will not impress God on the day of judgment. What we bring before God is our status as sinners. What God has brought to us is justification in life that's given as a free gift through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. That's what we have here. What, part of what all of this is doing is it's telling us you cannot be saved by the law. You can only be saved by the gospel. You can't be saved by your works. You can't be saved by any answer to God of I. I have done this. One of the most useful questions that you can ask anybody when you're trying to share the gospel with them is this one. And I, I, I've used this one a lot. It's this question, if you died today and you were standing at the gate of heaven and God asked you why he should let you in. Now, we've got a preface that's not how it happens, okay? But it's just a hypothetical question to, to ask this. What would you say to God? What is the reason that you would give for why God should grant you eternal life? And the answers of every lost person always have to do with I. Because I. Because I am a pretty good person. I know I'm not perfect, but I've really tried to be good to my wife and my kids. I know that I haven't done it right every time, but I know about the Ten Commandments and I've really tried to follow them. I, I really think that I'm going to be okay in the end. Or maybe there would be this, this answer, because I never heard. I, no, nobody ever told me the gospel. It's true. If you never heard, you, you're not going to heaven. That's the way that God saves people is to hear and be saved. We'll get into that more as we go through Romans, even next week. But it's an I answer. I did my best. I had good intentions. I studied my Bible. I worked very hard to obey the Ten Commandments. I sought justice for the weak and the oppressed. I fed the hungry. I prayed all the time. I grew up hearing about God, and I always believed in him. I was very dedicated to the church. I tried very hard to obey the Bible. I always asked for forgiveness when I sinned. I had an experience that I consider my conversion experience. 
I, 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 this is why you should let me into heaven. But the, sal- the answer for your salvation, and this is what is driven home in these chapters of Romans, is that the answer is never I. It is Christ. Because Christ, the reason for your salvation is never you. It is always Christ. That's why the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's because it must be focused upon Christ. We must receive the gift of righteousness by faith in Jesus and not by anything that we can do or anything that we consider in ourselves to be good enough in the end. It has to be Christ. Now, we're about to start this long section of Romans, and I just kind of tried to give you just a very brief skipping stone kind of overview of of these chapters that are coming up. But I want you to know that we're going to spend quite a while here because Paul spends quite a while here talking about the sinfulness of human sin. We're, We're going to talk about all of the depth of the depravity of mankind, but you need to know that it's there to set us up, and I'm going to hopefully remind us of this every week if I don't, kick me, okay? (laughs) The reason we need to know what the Bible tells us about the depth of our sin is so that we will be driven to the grace of Christ. We don't stop with the wrath of God. We see the wrath of God that drives us to the love and the grace of God. We don't stop at 118. We go to chapter 5, verse 8, and all that's in between and everything else, we need we need to know this because it sends us to grace. So as we go through these, these coming weeks that are ahead of us, talking about the depth of the depravity of mankind, do not do these things. Okay? Do not tell people about their sin without telling them about God's grace. Some people think that they have been a witness for Christ because they told someone how sinful they are. Well, did you tell anyone about the grace of Jesus that was poured out at the cross? Don't stop there. Go to grace. Go to the gospel. Don't stop at the law. Secondly, don't despair over our culture and our society. Yes, there, there is much to mourn over in our culture and our society, but we're not to despair over it. Because our hope is not in our culture, it's not in our society. Even if we got a great gospel-believing society, this generation, guess what this generation is going to do? They're going to have kids. And those kids are not going to be born saved. And every generation is going to have to come to the knowledge of the truth and repent and believe upon Christ. So we don't put our hope in culture and in society. We put our hope in the gospel. Put your hope in the gospel of Christ. The third thing not to do is don't despair over your soul. Believer, don't despair of your soul. Run to grace. As we're going to spend week after week for a while here just seeing the depth of sin, don't walk away saying, I understand my sin from that, and therefore, maybe I'm not going to heaven. Now, you should say that if your faith is not in Christ. You should say that if your reason at the gate of heaven was 
me, I, I might have been good enough. I got better after that sermon, something like that. But what we're given here is, is not, for believers, a despair. It is a rejoicing that it is not I, but Christ. It is Christ who lives in me. It is by grace that I have been saved through faith, and this is not my own doing. It is the gift of God, so that I may not boast. So don't despair over your soul. Instead, run to the grace of Jesus as we do these things. But Paul shows in these, this verse some reasons, and this is the, the rest of what we're going to see today, some reasons for that grace, what, what it is that we need to be saved from. So let's actually look at verse 18. You thought I was about done with the sermon, didn't you? So let's look at verse 18. Here's something we need to be saved from. The wrath of God. The wrath of God. It's going to be expounded upon for this whole section all the way to Romans 3, verse 20, and not stopping there. It's all over the Bible. God is a God who has wrath. That's not something that's very popular to talk about with God. There is constant demands that we not speak of that. In fact, you've probably heard it caricatured so often that you're afraid, or many people, I guess I should say, are afraid to speak of the wrath of God because you hear, you hear this, um, this idea like, well, a hellfire and brimstone preacher, that's, that's this caricature where then the, the, the desire of the world is for you to say, oh, well, if I hear a preacher talk about hellfire, and brimstone, which is the sulfur that Jesus speaks of as, as burning in hell, if I hear a preacher talk about that, I can just kind of think of him like a cartoon character that's in this categorical box over here, and I can dismiss that. Because that's a, I've already got a category for that kind of preacher. Well, guys, it's not about what kind of preacher there is. It's about what kind of God there is. You will meet God, and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth in things like writing off hellfire and brimstone preaching as irrelevant. God is a God who, let me just tell you some things that he has said about himself. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed his name, Yahweh, or the Lord, as it's translated in our Bibles. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now you see there, for one thing, if you just wanted to be that kind of contrarian person who walked away, just saying, God is all wrath, God doesn't let you speak of him that way. He's a God who's merciful and gracious, but he is a God who has wrath. It says he is slow to anger, but it doesn't say he is without anger. And in fact, he goes on and he describes himself as a God who will by no means 
clear the guilty. What that means is that the guilty will be punished under the wrath of God. Even as God in his inherent mercy and grace and patience restrains his wrath for a time, and in fact the reality that any lost person is living today is evidence of that. God would have the full right to drop the entire unbelieving world into hell at this very moment, and he would have had the right to do that with any of us. And God didn't even have to send Jesus. God didn't have to give us the gospel. Sometimes people ask, how can God be loving? And how can God be fair if there is such a thing as hell and if he really sends people there? Guys, the better question is, why is not everybody headed there? If we don't understand, if we're repulsed by the idea of the wrath of God, the problem is that you've begun your study of God with the study of man. You've begun your idea of God not by looking to God himself, but instead by exalting man. You have taken as the baseline for righteousness and reality good people like you. And then from there, you have thought to yourself, how should God then respond to us good people? Guys, the baseline for God is not man. The baseline for God is God. God is holy. God is holy. Where, where we are headed in Romans, in, in chapter 3, 23, it says, well, back in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is to all who believe there is no distinction. Here's what he says there's no distinction about. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God. That is God's standard. God's standard is not who is pretty good. God's standard is not I will give a weighted average for all of mankind. God doesn't grade on a curve, guys. God's standard is his perfect, holy righteousness. And there is none who have lived up to it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the standard. The standard is not your respectable neighbor. The standard is not your wonderful father who you admire. The standard is the glory of God. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Here's, here's some more things that, that are told to us in the scriptures. It says in, in Psalm 711, God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. Angry with the wicked every day. This is part of who God is. He is righteous and sin conflicts with that righteousness. It would be evil of God to look upon sin and to just dismiss it. It wouldn't be loving, that would be evil. If we understand what sin is, Malachi 1.4 says that there is this people with whom the Lord is angry forever. He's speaking of those who won't be saved. He said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. God's wrath, what it is, it's an avenging justice. It's not like man's wrath. Man's wrath is where something on the outside of us 
changes and affects our heart. God's wrath is not his being changed and affected by something on the outside of him. God, God in his wrath, has that wrath because he is unchanging. Because he has an attitude of holiness in every way, in all respects, with everyone of all time. And when sin comes up against God, it doesn't change God. It doesn't stir him up in a way that he had never felt before. It doesn't excite his passions as though he was being acted upon by some outside force. It is God simply being God and man demonstrating that we deserve justice that would be avenged upon our sin. That's what it is. Now, some would say, well, that's the Old Testament God. This is something that's been done throughout the history of Christianity is to try to pit the Old Testament God against the New Testament God as, they were two, as if they were two different gods or as if they were, these were two different religions. And you still hear this done today. We say, well, you look, in, you look back in Exodus and, and all these Old Testament prophetic books and you see this God who's he's just angry, he's tearing stuff apart. But then we come to the New Testament and it says God is love. So that, that can't be the same God. Oh, it is the same God. It is the same God. We'd be doomed if it wasn't. This is the same God. But just so you know, here, here's what it says in the very, very first sermon that's preached in the New Testament in Matthew. comes out of the mouth of John the Baptist, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when the Pharisees, who are righteous in their own eyes, but God knows their hearts, that they do not believe, that they, they are not justified by faith when they come, in front of John the Baptist, John says to them, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, you think to yourself, Okay, well, maybe John the Baptist, but not Jesus. Several months ago, I actually had someone that I was, I was sharing the gospel with who told me, You know what? I, I just don't know if I can... I, I actually, I, at this point, I hadn't said anything about hell, but this person brought up to me hell because they, they were convinced that Jesus would never talk about such a thing. And like, well, okay, yeah, I, I, I get that God is good and all that kind of stuff. Jesus is great, but all these, all these fire and brimstone preachers, I think they actually use that term too, not knowing that I was one, um, <laughs> said they don't, they don't recognize that Jesus, he spoke of love. He didn't talk about hell. Guys, I'll tell you what I, I told her, which is there is literally no other person in the Bible upon whose lips there are more words about hell than Jesus. Jesus warns us. He preached the same sermon as his first sermon that was John the Baptist's first sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus said, do not fear those who can only kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But I will tell you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. Jesus knew the wrath of God. Jesus is coming to carry out the wrath of God. Revelation 19. In the return of Jesus, here is how he's spoken and pictured. It says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
Jesus has been given all judgment. The Son has been given all judgment by the Father. That's the way that he speaks of himself in John 5, and he will carry it out. And he will tread the winepress of the wrath of God, which is a picture of the wicked, unbelieving, being crushed underneath his feet. The good news of the gospel is that the same one, the same one who will crush the wicked, who will pour their blood out so that it runs for, I can't remember how long it's at, 1,600 stadia, I think, in Revelation. He's the same one who has first come to pour out his own blood for us. He's, he has come to rescue us from his own wrath. Isn't that amazing? The same God who will by no means clear the guilty is also a God who is merciful and gracious and invites us to come to him and receive mercy, not on the basis of just letting it go, but on the basis that his wrath has been satisfied at the cross. Now, some would look at this. Some would look and say, well, if we believe that God is righteous, then we're saying that Christians should be wrathful. If we believe that God is a God of wrath and we're supposed to imitate God, then really, we, we, you know, this is just an excuse for why we shouldn't preach about the wrath of God is because, well, maybe that would then make Christians think that they should be wrathful. And I've got to tell you, I think I've known some Christians who actually thought that. This happens occasionally, that you'll get these Christians who are really excited about the wrath of God, and they think that that, therefore, means that they should go out and act angry at everyone. That's not the case, guys. The reason is because there is a difference between the wrath of God and the wrath of man. You need to know this. God is not stirred up from outside. God is not changed from outside. His wrath is a characteristic of his unchanging goodness, holiness, righteousness. Do you know what man's wrath is? It is something that changes us. We are mutable. We are changeable. Our hearts are like little oceans. And when, the, when these things act on us from outside, we think we're cool, calm, and collected because the, the, the waters are calm on our hearts. But you just don't know when something is going to come up and start tossing those waters around in wrath. Where you see, that person should not have done that to me. That person sometimes is four years old. You say, this, this should not have happened. But guys, here's the way that the Bible speaks of man's wrath as opposed to God's wrath. It doesn't say, it does not say that every instance of human anger is sinful. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. When we think of sin being committed against God, for somebody who understands what sin is and who God is, it stirs up a level of anger, especially the more grievous sins. I think, I think of the millions of babies that have been killed in this country since 1973. Guys, but the way the Bible speaks of that is that if you hold on to that, you need to realize that you are not God. You are not God. God's wrath and man's wrath are two different things. Here is the way that man's wrath is spoken of in Ephesians 4, is that we are to put it away. 
It says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin, which shows us that there is such a thing as righteous anger. But then it says, listen to this, even if your anger is not a sinful anger, it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Even if you are absolutely convinced that your anger is perfectly righteous, still put it away before the sun goes down and give no opportunity to the devil. When we see the wrath of God, we don't say, therefore, I can be wrathful, because that is a playground for the devil in your heart. It says in Ephesians 4, same chapter, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So to man's anger, it says, put it away, and it says, leave it to God. This is later in Romans chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is why even when you feel righteous anger, you can put it away before the sun goes down. Because your anger is not going to accomplish what God's anger does. Your anger, it says in James 1, will not achieve the righteousness of God. God's avenging justice will achieve good purposes no matter what. Your avenging justice will not. So put it away. Leave it to the wrath of God. The fact of the wrath of God, in fact, is part of why we as Christians can be so even-keeled, why we can be so tender-hearted, why we can be forgiving each other so readily is because we know that God is just. God will take care of this. My anger will not accomplish the righteousness of God. But this righteousness, this wrath now is revealed. It's revealed, and how is it revealed? It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. How is it revealed? Well, God started revealing his wrath Immediately after human sin began in the Garden of Eden, when he, when he cursed mankind, when he said that we were going to die from our sins, when he said that the world is out to kill us now with things like, uh, with things like disease and with these thorns that come up out of the ground when you try to work, there's wrath of God revealed there. There's wrath of God revealed at the flood. When God sent a flood over the whole earth to destroy all mankind except for the one family that he had given grace to. There was wrath of God revealed at the Red Sea when he crashed it back down on the Egyptians after he let the people of Israel pass through unscathed, rescued them from their oppression, and then crushed their oppressors. It was revealed in the conquest of Canaan when God sent his people in to destroy those enemy nations where they had filled up the wrath of God against themselves. It was revealed against Israel when Israel was sent into exile in response to their injustices and their sins and their idolatries. And it was revealed against the Gentiles when God then rescued Israel out of exile and showed his vengeance upon those nations that would turn against the Lord's chosen people. And here, the wrath of God is revealed in a present way. 
It's revealed in a present way. That's a present tense. The wrath of God is revealed in this way that he's about to outline in the rest of chapter 1, which is in God's giving up sinful people deeper into sin. How is God's wrath revealed right now? Well, those who are in love with sin say, I don't see it. I feel fine. Maybe they don't always feel fine. But then they go to therapy. But they say, it's, I, I, nothing's ever going to happen. But here's what it says, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Verse 28, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see what's happening here. The Bible is saying here is a revealing of the wrath of God even before the final judgment comes. He is allowing those who are under that judgment to store up further and further judgment upon themselves by giving them up to further and further sin. When someone goes deeper into sin, that is a revelation of the wrath of God as he is allowing them to spiral out of control towards the final judgment. That's what it is. And lastly, lastly, it's going to be revealed on the day of Christ when Jesus exercises all judgment on the nations when he treads the winepress of the wrath of God. But when I say lastly, I don't, want to, I don't want you to think that that's ultimately. Here is the ultimate demonstration of the wrath of God, the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus. Ultimately, the, the wrath of God is revealed as Jesus hung on the cross. That the judge of the whole earth, who will do what is right, he hung there on the cross on that piece of wood by these metal nails through his hands and through his feet, And you know what he cried out? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Guys, the wrath of God was poured out for our sins. Those whom God has loved from before the foundation of the world, those who will embrace Jesus in faith, the wrath of God for my sins was poured out on Jesus at the cross. That's the ultimate demonstration of the wrath of God, so that when we look to the cross of Jesus, we know that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there is going to be a righteous and wrathful judgment upon your sin. And I can say that for each and every one of us personally. There is a wrathful, righteous judgment of God upon your sin But I want to know, will you suppress the truth of your unrighteousness? And will you experience that wrathful judgment for yourself in the lake of fire? Or will you look to the cross of Jesus in faith and see his judgment poured out on Christ in your place? We got halfway through this verse, so we'll pick up in the second half of this verse next week about the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
that is suppressed, suppressing the truth, or the unrighteousness that goes forward to suppress the truth. But here is the big question for us. Do we look to ourselves for our justification, or do we look to God? And if we look to God, are we looking to the true God? Are we looking to the God who actually is righteous against sin and who has demonstrated that righteousness and his love in sending Jesus, his son, to be the propitiation for our sins? Will you receive that free gift of eternal life by faith? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have um, shown us the truth about yourself. God, we, we want to know you, the true God, We don't want to know some sort of a caricature or invention of our own minds of what you would, what we would think that you are. We we don't want to mold our idea of you around what would be convenient for us and for preserving our own way of life and sin. God, I pray instead that you would bring each and every soul here face to face with the reality that you have revealed here in the scriptures of who you are and of who we are in relation to you. God, I pray. God, I pray that the instructions of the first sermon of Jesus would be obeyed today to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God, I pray that we would do what is told to us to do in the scriptures, to flee from the wrath to come. God, I thank you that we have not only this horrifying news about the wrath of God that we deserve, but also the beautiful news of the grace that you've shown us in Jesus. God, thank you for being not only the God who will fully, justly punish sin, but for being the God who has punished our sin upon the cross for all who will believe. And I pray that that belief would be a reality in every heart. I pray that you would turn our hearts not to hate and rebel against you in who you have revealed yourself to be, but to embrace you and love you through your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.